Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to On The Sporting Couch, the only sports psychology programme on British radio. I'm Gary Bloom, sports psychotherapist, and that means I work one-to-one with leading sportsmen and women, treating conditions like depression, anxiety, performance issues, addictive behaviours, loss of form, or dealing with injury. I hope the show will encourage anyone who's going through a tough time to seek professional help. And remember, you're not alone. One in four of us will suffer some sort of mental health issues at some stage in our lives, and today's programme hopefully will give an idea of what goes on between the therapist, that's me, and the person who today is on the sporting couch. Meet Lorenzo Bruno Nero Delaglio, OBE, better known as Lawrence Delaglio, the former captain of England's rugby union team. He was a one-club man playing flanker or number eight for London Wasps. He won 85 caps for England and was part of the team that won the 2003 Rugby World Cup. But tragedy affected him deeply when, as a teenager, he lost his sister in the Marchioness Riverboat disaster when two vessels collided on the River Thames and 51 people lost their lives. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and in the studio today, Lawrence Delaglio, who said rugby was a kind of therapy after the early family tragedy. Well, I think my first stable long-term relationship was actually at home and with my parents, uh, not with rugby at all, thankfully. Um, you know, the one of many things that my parents gave me, um, which not, not every young person has when they're brought into the world, is unconditional love. I was given that by... My mother and my father, um, obviously driven by my mother in the in the era when you know fathers used to be out of work all the time and mothers were looking after the children and and I was given two things really uh, that I remember very succinctly and very very strongly: unconditional love uh, and then huge amounts of belief um, and positive messaging and um, like what what sort of positive messages well just to, just to go out there and, and 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 really you know well work hard go out there and enjoy yourself you know go out there and work and, and grab everything you possibly can you know life is tough but if you're prepared to you know to um you know to, to work hard you know anything and everything is possible shoot for the moon and you'll be amongst the stars was the was the sort of overriding message that i had you know ambition is uh is just a word and you should go out there and, and, and really give it give it everything you've got and uh, 
But I think the love side of it is important. You know, very tactile, uh, very not just in words, but actually in in emotions as well. Um, because I don't know, for some reason, we, we the, the, the English or British mentality is is to say it with words, but not necessarily necessarily to be emotional about it. Lawrence, I'm going to take you back to the most painful bit of your life. You're 16 years old, and tragically, your sister dies in the Marchioness disaster. I can't even imagine what that could be like. What did it do to you, and what did it do to your family? Well, it's... I mean, obviously, there's the there's the short-term implications, and then there's the much longer-term sort of um, ramifications of, of something like that. Um, I mean, losing anyone in your life is is painful, very painful indeed. Um, you know, grief is is some of the is some of the most acute pain you can experience. But I suppose we all grow up in our lives believing that you know that there is a order of the way things work out. You know, your your grandparents die first, then your parents die, and then you know you have children, and eventually you die or you become grandparents, etc. There's, there's there's a natural order, and that is you know when someone dies in that natural order it's painful enough i think what's really difficult to comprehend and to understand is when that order is completely uh, turned upside down so to lose someone uh, in my case my sister francesca at the age of 19 three years my senior and to see my parents lose and bury their their own daughter um is definitely uh, not the way it should be. Um, and I think the circumstances around the way that she and all the other victims of the Marchioness died was, uh, you know, was very painful indeed because they were young people who, despite what the press may have portrayed, um, were... Uh, incredibly hard working about to go out and, and launch their life you know into into the uh, into the best part of their lives about to go out and launch themselves in their in their careers and they had their lives cruelly taken away they were going out to celebrate an, uh, someone's birthday party and um, you know quite recklessly uh, and unnecessarily um, their lives were taken and I think initially there's obviously that huge amount of pain there's a huge amount of injustice um, there's ultimately there's lots and lots of questions that remain or, or at the time remained unanswered um you know you, what, you know what i feel bubbling away underneath here like almost like lava in a volcano your anger well it's not it's not anger because i'm actually not angry about it in the in the why not you no know, because anger anger is is because i'd be furious ang- quite, I'd be quite a strong furious. my mother was angry and i was angry and of course initially we were all angry you know there was no public inquiry the reason there was no public inquiry is because Cecil Parkinson, the transport minister under Margaret Thatcher's government, uh, who became Lord Parkinson, is now passed away, was on the board as a non-exec director of Ready Mix Concrete, the company that caused the accident. So, you know, a corporate cover-up, whatever you like to call it, uh, there was an independent inquiry um, and someone was appointed by by Lord Parkinson or, uh, and the government to, to run that inquiry. So, you know... there. In the same way as, as the Hillsborough victims feel um, very uh, hard done by, you know, so can the victims of the Marchioness because, you know, it only was subsequently found out that the rescue boats were sent in the wrong direction. There was so, there were so many things that went wrong. The captain of the boat didn't have a lookout. You know, all these things. Anyway, these are things that ultimately came out in the wash eventually. Six years later, there was a change of government. But again, my mother bought one share in ready-mixed concrete. She went to the AGM. 
she was determined that that there was um uh something very fishy going on with with this whole scenario and what she was campaigning for along with many others was was justice quite rightly and um you know when you have to bury one of your own children you know that 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 makes you pretty angry and pretty uh, determined eventually she got she got the public inquiry along with the Martianist action group and um it took a change of government sadly for that to happen but that's inevitably what does happen and and more importantly and this is the key to it is that um there is now three RNL lifeboat stations across the River Thames. Um, they are called out 90 times a year, and hopefully no other families or family will ever have to go through the experience that we had to go through uh, on that night in August when my mother woke me up the morning of uh, of uh, the Marchioness going down and said, you know, your sister, that party she went to last night, she hasn't come home yet. So... You know, what was going on for you at that moment, Lawrence? Well, it was very difficult. You know, I was supposed to be on the party. I was going to go myself. I was 16. I was thinking... You well, were meant to be on that boat? Yeah, I was going to go with her, but I didn't feel very well, which is unlike me. Um, anyway, so obviously my, the realisation was that she, she was dead because my my sister was a very sensible young young lady and if she hadn't come home at 7 by 7 o'clock in the morning, then there was a good, very good reason for that. So, you know, but then how do you deal with grief at the age of 16? Um and it's going to scar you. Well, it, it, it's going to, going to cause you a lot of problems and a lot of pain. Uh, and it did for a long time. And, and also, you know, I've, I'm not only is, am I kind of trying to um, to deal with my own emotions and my own grief, but obviously watching my parents um, and their emotions and, and, and what that means to them uh, and how it sort of moved them in different directions. And then all the other people involved. And you've got to do that in a very public way but yet still try and carry on with the rest of your life. So undoubtedly it raises a number of questions. You think their life's terribly unfair um, and there is a certain amount of initial anger. But I mean, I, look, I had help and support from close family and friends around me. You know, I was involved in some uh, therapy at the time to try and understand and, and somehow come to terms with uh, what is... A, a a terrible thing to happen to you in, at that moment in time. And Lawrence, uh, I'm going to ask you a really tough question, and I'm owning the fact it's a tough question. If your sister could hear you right now, the age you are now, and, and many, many years have passed, what would you like to say to her? Um, I don't think I would need to say too much to her, really, because what I did celebrate was that we had 16 amazing years together uh, at that time. She died at 19 I, uh, and, and I was 16. And we had the most incredible relationship, um, even for, in those you know early years. We didn't see each other an enormous amount of the time, but we never... Um, we, we never argued like siblings argue. She was the sensible one. I was I was the slightly mischievous one. But that tends to be the case with the uh, older, younger dynamic going on. Uh, and we had the most incredible relationship. She worked incredibly hard, and then unfortunately, she 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 died just at a time when she was going to reap the rewards of all that incredible hard work. Mm. And I think uh, I don't. You know, yes, there's obviously you know uh, there's an opportunity to have to have. Um, develop that relationship further and further and obviously having now been the only the only child left behind in in her death um you know sometimes that that can feel like quite a lonely place but look you know eventually my relationship with my parents is you know got got itself you know somewhere back close to normality it can never be the same again when someone so close is ripped away from you but uh yeah my father's still alive now my mother passed away uh, in 2008 and you know, for her, somehow there was a bit of peace in in the fact that she was joining my sister in you know in in heaven, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because we were, she was very strong religiously. We were very strong religiously, Catholic family, and uh, 
you know, we had a very strong, tight family unit. So, are you look, a spiritual man? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I. Do, I think, do you look at God and say, "What on earth were you doing? What on earth were you thinking?" Well, about? I think we all question things like that. But um, you know, look, when you when you when you sit back and reflect, you know, what happened to us it was 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 horrible uh, and horrible at the time, and it's very difficult to to put it into words and 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 to to process it even even then. Um, but did it shake your faith? Uh, I think at the age of sixteen. I think you're 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 still learning about faith and about all these things and about the way that you know that life is supposed to work out and clearly when something quite catastrophic like that happens to you then it questions everything not not just your faith it questions your um you know your motives for you know you know surely life's not supposed to be like that and and therefore you know for me for a couple of years I was uh, you know probably in this kind of carousel, just sort of going round and round and round, trying to process a lot of those emotions. And then, you know, that's when I got to about 18, 19. And listen, sport had been a big part of my life all the way through, you know, long before my sister passed away. But I definitely needed needed to do something, to find something that was going to give me a uh, a focus and kind of get me off this kind of carousel of of of, of kind of challenging life and et cetera. And, and as it turned out, rugby quite um, strangely became that 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 thing I, I joined a rugby club um and it happened to be wasps and from that moment onwards um I was pretty determined that I would do some try and do something to um to to make my life at the time a better place but also importantly to try and do something to bring my mother and father a bit closer together because they were kind of grieving in two different and um, distinctly different directions so so it became a uh, a bit of when i talked to you earlier uh, offline about therapy i think it just it it helped us to bring the family closer together because rugby in, in a way as it many other sports are is a community it's a family it's a it's a sport where people look after each other so did you um, need another family to support your own family at that stage Lawrence? well i think yeah i think we needed a reason to smile Still to come on On the Sporting Couch, Lawrence Delalio talks more about his battle to be number one in the world. Rugby's quite an interesting sport. It's interpreted in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people. And it's, you know, perhaps historically had this connotation of this image of, of being sort of white, elite, middle class, private school, you know, all that sort of thing. And maybe for, for the right reasons it was at, at one point. But, but what I loved about rugby is, is that it, it celebrated difference you know it, it was actually went out of its way to to bring in different people and when I walked into wasps I wasn't stereotyped I wasn't they celebrated difference and it made and, and that and it, and it opened its arms really and I, and I did I, I felt I felt like I'd arrived at a place that I could I could I could start to rebuild the blocks that needed to be rebuilt in my life and you know, my sister was a very high achiever for the 19 years that she was alive. She was a ballet dancer. She was going to be a principal ballet dancer in the Royal Ballet. And uh, and she'd achieved outstanding results in everything she did. So um, I, like most boys, were a little bit late to come to the party. It took a little bit longer to develop uh, and to uh, to get that. But my sister always used to say to my mum, don't worry about Lawrence. He'll, you know, he'll get there. You know, he'll, he'll come to the top. And, um, you know, maybe her passing was the catalyst that I needed to 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 provide that spur but certainly uh, boy did it do that because I was determined after that to 
just to to move forward and to create an environment where my mum and dad could come and watch rugby and put a smile back on their faces and feel like they were part of a fa- uh, an extended family. Almost like emotional medicine. Yeah, absolutely. You know, everyone had obviously knew our situation. Um, you know, it was very public whether it happened at the time, and and but no one really, you know. Rugby's just got a way of not not really judging anyone in that sense, and and it was just a really really nice environment to come into, um, and something to look forward to. I think for, it was the way my parents looked you know looked at it because I would imagine having now had children of my own um, who are in their twenties, youngest is eighteen, two girls and a boy. Um, the thought of having to do what my parents did, which was to bury one of their own children, would would be just unthinkable uh and so i think it was an opportunity for them to um to try and have something to smile about when did you first realize that rugby could be a significant part of your life and be a career and you could play professionally and even knock on the door of england one day well i was always someone who was um really drawn to sport um but like a lot of people in the united kingdom or certainly in britain it was um Football was obviously the thing that we grew up with and everyone wants to be a football player. And then if you can't be a football player, you play rugby. And if you can't catch, they put you in a boat. I mean, that's, that's generally the way it works, isn't it? Um, but no, we, I, I, I played a lot of sport at school, football, rugby, cricket, athletics, etc. But I was never necessarily, um, you know, you couldn't necessarily say that young man is going to be a professional football player or a professional rugby player. I didn't have that kind of desire that young children have nowadays because I think the set the structures and the systems are very different and they're introduced them much younger there was a much more there was in many ways there was a freedom just to go out and express yourself and play as many sports as you possibly can I'm kind of asking the question what did it do to you in terms of your self-confidence as a young man a man had undergone this terrible tragedy Mm -hmm. that you thought actually I'm really really good at something I mean I just found I found a a sport that I seemed to enjoy. I didn't necessarily think that I was any good at it. I just really enjoyed it. I found a group of people that I felt very comfortable just being around and, and hanging out with. You know, I saw what it was capable of doing in terms of uniting and bringing my family together. And I didn't really think of it any more than that, really. It was certainly not about embarking on a career of, of you know, this is going to be the rest of my life. Because rugby, I, I joined Wasps in 1990, um, and everyone was amateur. You know, we used to turn up on a Tuesday and a Thursday, and it was full of multiple different characters. It was this sort of melting pot of, of, of very eclectic people. Um, and the game didn't go professional for another five years. But what I did realise is slowly but surely, um, you know, the game itself was getting more and more high profile and, and the game was getting more and more interesting um, and, and captivating the imagination of lots of people. It was a real team game, you know. You, you can't do your job unless other people do their job, you know, which is which is quite meaningful. And, and actually, if you don't do your job um, well, other people get hurt. Um, so there was this dependence and codependence and, and you know accountability that was really important about rugby that I really liked. When we spoke the other day on the telephone, Lawrence, he said to me, "Nothing really matches the uh, intoxicating." excitement of success but you also said to me lose a game and I was awful I just want to examine that little bit because I I wonder whether the emotional landscape of loss hit something much much deeper for you 
Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, I, I think from from a sporting context, I mean, you know, if unless you detest losing, then this, you know, then then you know, for me, I, I did detest losing. I mean, not in an unsporting way. I don't, you know, I don't. What mean did it do to you? What did three, it do three to months, you? Well, it made me uncomfortable uh, deeply. Um, do you think that was linked? Me, made, no, no. Very early on, it made me angry. I mean, everyone often says, "Oh, it's you know," because you're really competitive. But I don't know whether it is. I don't know whether it's. It's um, to do with um, necessarily being competitive. I just felt a, I felt a personal and collective sense of, of of disappointment in letting people down. You know, that's the you know. Well, I wonder whether that's connected to the early family tragedy. This idea that Quite you had a catastrophic loss, yeah. and these sort of much more milder losses, of yeah. course, by the compared with the death of your sister, sort of almost like an old wound. Maybe. I mean, I'd, look, I'd look at it the other way around. I'd look at it in the fact that there's no doubt that after I'd recovered initially from the loss of, um, and you can't ever recover com- totally, but after you've recovered initially from the loss of losing my sister, that I became um, very driven, I think is the word I would use, driven to try and um, fulfil my own potential at something. As it turned out, it ended up being rugby. I became very driven at trying to honour the memory of my sister and her death. I became very driven by the fact that hopefully by bringing some sort of happiness and possible success to to my name and the family that it, and, and that it might bring my parents. So I, I don't think it was about comparing one loss with the other. Mm. I think it's just about using... I, I felt like... I, I had a point to prove. Did um, you feel the Delalio name had been shamed in some way by what had happened to your sister? No, not no, 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 not at all. I just it'd been damaged, but that's not through her fault or no. anyone else's fault. Um, and that damage was somehow repaired in some respect by what you had you began to achieve as a rugby player. Well, I, I, but also uh, there was perspective around what I was doing. I was playing sport, okay, but actually. I, I, I come from a situation that was much, you know, much bigger than that. So therefore, the way that I would articulate my um, my feelings was was probably fairly transparent, quite authentic. I'd like to think, quite emotional. Um, I mean, I was always destined to be reasonably emotional, half Italian. So, you know, that's that's outward displays of emotion at home. We're not a, we're, we're, we're not a taboo. You know what I mean? We could kiss and cuddle each other in public and. You know, which, whereas a lot of my peers, you know, found that a bit awkward because they were traditionally very English. But, but every time I went out on the rugby field, I, I thought about my sister and I thought about um, what she would have thought had, you know, because I used to watch her dance in the same way as she would have watched me play rugby had she been alive to watch it. So I, I think I used it in a really positive way to try and bring out the best in myself, but so- also to bring out the best in in the people around me by by articulating that message. But I've always had this challenge in my mind as to whether I would have done that anyway Mm. or whether it was was driven just purely because I'd lost my sister. You know, um, are are your behaviours, you know, your subsequent behaviours driven by exactly what's happened to you in your past or would they have manifested, would those behaviours have manifested themselves to a certain degree anyway? Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't know, really, is the answer to that. I'm always wrestling with that myself. Well, I, I suspect the answer lies somewhere betwixt and between. Uh, maybe you would have become a very, very good rugby player, but to get to the very top, to be the captain of England, I wonder what the effect your sister's death had on you in that. And my, my, theory, my theory would go like this, that somewhere you believed 
that at the uh, very cutting edge of your performance, she was watching you, watching over you in some way. Yeah, I think there's... I think it's fair to say that. Um, and that must have given you some sort of inner strength that might not have been evident in other players who didn't have your experience. Quite possibly, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have wanted them to go through that experience. No, um, no. You know, there's a duty to, 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 to the, your teammates. Um, there's a duty to, your, to the people that, that support you. There's a duty to the, you know, to the wider support group that have enabled you to, to be in the position that you are. Um, and so I think there's a responsibility there that I that I felt right from a strong age. But there's no doubt that yes, of course, when when we look at each individual player's motivations, you know, then you have to each person has to has to have their own their own motivation for why they're there. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh, jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh, let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back to On the Sporting Couch. I'm Gary Bloom, sports psychotherapist, and with me today in the studio is Lawrence Delalio talking sports psychology and his career. You see, being in your presence, Lawrence, I get the um, feeling of being with a highly uh, principled man. You have great integrity. And yet, I'm going to take you back to the 24th of May 1999 when you resign as England captain with allegations from the News of the World who broke the story that you were involved in some sort of drug scandal. To me, as a therapist, sounds just that isn't the type of person I could have imagined being involved in this. <laughs> no, it's not. And the reason that you can't associate uh, that story with me is because it was a completely made-up story, uh, made up by me to a degree, but also made up completely by the newspaper to sell stories. Listen, I'm... I'm inherently maybe a bit of a show-off at times you know well how, uh, how did you come about may, may, making may, it up well because it was just fabricated if you say something to your wife for instance and you're lying in bed together and you, you you discuss a very personal matter um or a very close friend and you say something that is of, of quite an intimate or sensitive nature um or national security or whatever it might be but you say that in the knowledge that 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 is going no further that's just between you and that person that you're talking to if you know that someone's listening next door 
and they're going to record all that information and it's going to be broadcast to the nation the following day, that might change the nature of what you might say to them. So, you know, what is intentionally discussed and what is unintentionally discussed are two totally different things. So, Well, I think what the word that comes up for me here, Lawrence, is boundaries because... I don't understand how it happened. I don't. I don't. It happened. Um, I, I mean, there was a certain amount of alcohol involved, you know. Which, so you which, got drunk. You say daft, daft things, daft stuff, and then it appears on the paper the next in the paper the next day. Now, what I have to admit is that I was not blameless in the whole episode. Um, but, Were you ever involved but, in drugs? But it was no. But it was a. It was a. It was a situation that that didn't need to happen. And what angered me was the fact that I brought um, a certain amount of. Uh, pain and a certain amount of uh, unnecessary pain and suffering to people very close to me you know my mum and dad the following week the the mail on sunday wrote you know ran a story on the front page of the mail on sunday same day as english british forces invade kosovo they run a story uh, england captain snorts cocaine in bar i mean an absolute nonsense story Th- these are all learning experiences in my life would i have preferred for them not to happen of course i would have done but uh, it's a question of of learning the mistakes moving on you know we make mistakes in life i shouldn't have got myself in a situation where i was in that well i'll tell you why I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this as a therapist but i'm not angry about it you know i mean uh, the fact that i raise my voice is is one thing i'm definitely not angry about it because uh, when you've lost your sister in, a, in something as tragic as the Marchioness, there's nothing that anyone can do. There's nothing that anyone can do to you. And that's where right, I was going back that to. That is be- ever going to make you feel the way you felt that day. So, therefore, perspective is really, really important. You know, I'm going to move on. And that's the key. You're, you're hanging around on a subject that's... that's I, I, I think you're trying to draw more relevance into what happens in, the, in, in, in stories you know, and, in newspapers a, than, than actually did. As a psychologist... My, my life is made up of so many different things. Uh, and I promise you, the, the, the very sad incident with the news of the world uh, is only a very, very small part of that. And, psychologists uh, are detectives. We try yeah. and find out. We have a look. We, we shine our, our torchlight yeah. into different areas. Sometimes there's nothing there and sometimes yeah. there is. I'm going to move on because I'm going to go to the, from the a very low... A period of your life to them arguably professionally playing rugby the absolute top what did you feel when johnny wilkinson took that drop goal attempt at the end of the 2003 rugby world cup final because the whole of the nation held its breath what was going on for you at that moment i think there's obviously a huge amount of joy and uh, no, before and, he kicked it and did, satisfaction just before he kicked it um did you know it was coming what, that we would win? Yes. I you knew that was going to happen? No, I knew we were going to win. Why? Because we'd beaten Australia six times previously. Um, so we knew we were a better team than them. They knew we were a better team than them. Um, we just had to go out there and do it. And, you know, we listen, we made ex- we made quite hard work of that particular game. But then, you know, you've got to give credit to the, your opponent. They were playing in home soil. You know, they'd just beaten New Zealand in the semi-final. Um, so, yeah, look, we just had to keep on... We said to ourselves... that. We were the number one side in the world at that time, and we had been for the past three years. It wasn't it wasn't like a like a by chance that we ended up in the World Cup final. We'd beaten Australia six times. We'd beaten New Zealand the last three times we played them. We'd uh, most recently beaten Australia and New Zealand in New Zealand and Australia. So, um, but I think we we just had to go out there and prove it to everyone. So, I remember saying to my mum uh, and dad in about June of two thousand and three. I said, you, you know, phoned them up. I said, are you guys coming to Australia? And they said, oh, yeah, I was going to talk to you about that. We're, 
you know, money's a bit tight. And I said, no, no, don't be stupid. I said, let me, let me sort this out for you. I said, we're going to win this World Cup in Australia. I think we're going to win it. I'm pretty sure we're going to win it. And you guys need to be there to experience, you know, that feeling. You've given me the, all the opportunity I've had in my life. So, so I, I went and organised a trip for them. And, uh, yeah, so I think there was a, there was a sense of, of, of a job well done, you know, when that drop goal finally went over and, you know, we probably shouldn't have waited till the last minute of extra time, but we like these things to be quite dramatic in, in, in British sport, don't we really? I mean, we should have been out of sight by half time, but you have to give credit to, to the, to, to Australia for fighting back. Um, so yeah, so it was the culmination for us at that particular group. Of, of, a, of a six-year journey that had taken a, lo- a long, long time to be there, to get there. I've got a couple of questions about it. Had you not resigned in 1999, would you have been the England captain that day? And what did you feel about Martin Johnson picking up the trophy? Um, I think the when, when, you, when, when I came into the team, I wasn't England captain. Mm-hmm. And when I left the team in 2007, so I came in in 1993, mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't the captain. And when I came out in 2007, I wasn't the captain. So being the captain is not a prerequisite for, uh, for for being in the team. And I never actually viewed it that way. The time that I was captain was a great privilege and a great honour. Um, but playing for England was a great privilege and also a great honour. Being captain was no bigger privilege or bigger honour. Um, so I... Uh, I didn't. I didn't think. I didn't think of my England career in, in currency terms as, as being captain. I played eighty-five times for England. I had a pretty good run at it. But if I had a point to make as a, as a member of uh, that team, I didn't need the captain's armband to make that point. So um, I would always support a captain, uh, and I'd like to think when I was captain, I would be supported by the, by the group as well. So. Uh, Rugby is, is is so much more than one individual. It's probably the the sport that stands out for me as being the ultimate team sport. Um, and captain, spiritual leader, whatever you want to call it, um, I didn't need the armband to say or, or behave like a captain or do what I wanted to do. Martin Johnson was one of the very best players the game has ever seen. He was a very uh, he was an amazing captain, a very different captain to possibly the one that that um, that I that I was. Um, you know, he wasn't as impulsive, he wasn't as emotional. He was able to to be a little bit more considered. Uh, but ultimately, um, the best teams are made up of the of the best and the greatest individuals. And he was a great individual. And there were a number of other great individuals. And the interesting thing about captaincy, without pushing aside your question is that actually seven or eight of that team that played in that World Cup final had all captained England at some point in their career. Mm. Um, so, therefore, we had this kind of collective leadership group that allowed us to to get out of jail a few times and, and, and ultimately to get over the line. So, back in 2003, did you have a team psychologist to help you? No, not an official role of team psychologist, but Clive Woodward, who was the architect of, of that World Cup success, um, was very clear in, in terms of providing the support systems around the group that, that we needed to become the best players in the world. He was um, all about what he called the critical non-essentials. So it was about doing 100 things 1% better, you know, okay. which is a mantra that maybe Dave Brailsford and others have, have then built on and, and, and moved forward. But um, so, you know, we, we split the game down into, into, the, into the various components, defence, attack, kicking, you know, all these various different things. And, and, and we brought in the very best practitioners. We had an eye coach who helped us to perhaps see things in a different way. But uh, Dave 
Allred was Johnny Wilkinson's kicking coach, but he was also someone who had a PhD in in, in how the mind and the body work together. So, um, you know, he was a he was a good mentor for a lot of the players if they felt that they needed to discuss certain things, you know, mentally that might change or improve or enhance the the way that they played the game. Um, I'd like to think that a lot of our team just through our life experiences were quite mentally resilient um you know we'd been through a lot together as a group uh, and we've been through a lot together individually you know we've already talked about some of my own personal experiences on my journey mm. um i'm not unique in that model there was a number of other players who play for england who've all been on their own personal journey um they've suffered heartbreak you know in their own careers etc so i think mentally we were in a pretty strong place and i go back to the point that we were the number one side in the world for for a number of years so what we were trying to do was win something that would tangibly remind everyone and reward us that we we were the number one side in the world so there's a difference between being the hunter and the hunted um you know in sports you know when you get to the top um you tend to get there because of a number of reasons you get there because you've got someone to chase because you're you've got a guy that has always pipped you to the gold medal or you've got someone who always beats you in the final set of a tennis match or you've got a team that always seemed to beat you in the last 5 or 10 minutes of a rugby match you know we were that team we were the team that were winning so there's a there's a different psychology i think between the hunter and the hunted and i, I would agree with you on that one for sure this is talk sport and our program on the sporting couch programme about psychology in sport. My guest in the studio is former England Rugby Union captain and World Cup winner, Lawrence Delalio. I've spoken to people who've achieved great success in sport and they said, actually, it's a bit of a come down, a bit of a depressive time just after that huge success. Because once you've reached the top, where do you go then? Is that something that you recognise? No. Actually, um, I mean, I played in 2003 World Cup final, which was the beginning of the year. Um, and it was the beginning of our rugby season. And um, I was lucky enough to come out the other side of the World Cup final in one piece. Um, we had a bit of a celebration, it has to be said. And I got back, I flew home, I got back to my club Wasps, of which I was captain. And my coach, Warren Gatland, who many rugby fans will know at the time, said to me, well done, you've had a brilliant World Cup, really pleased for you, couldn't be prouder for you in English rugby, have a week off, sober up, um, you know, you're back in, you're back in, in training next week. And we've got a big European Cup match. We actually went on as a club to win the European Cup that season and the, and the uh, Premiership title. So as years go, to start your year with the World Cup <laughs> and then to end your year with the... Premier League and then the European title was was quite a good year. So for me, there was no kind of you know, you know, you've won the World Cup, so suddenly you're going to retire and stop playing rugby. I literally had a week off, went straight back into it, and I had the best year of my life. Um, what I would say is that there is a lot of sportsmen and a lot of teams and and prepare for success. What they don't do is prepare for what happens after success. It's called succession planning. And there's no doubt that the England rugby team at the time put a huge amount of money, effort, resources, energy into winning that World Cup. From Clive Woodward through to the, you know, Johnny Wilkinson and everyone. 
what we what they didn't do was prepare for life after the World Cup. You know, how would Clive Woodward's mental state be? Which players would be retiring after England had won? Which ones would still be playing? So actually, England went from this position of being on top of the world in 2003, in November, to falling to about ranked number fifth or sixth. I captained England the following summer, uh, and we were taken to New Zealand and Australia on tour. Now, in your... In your right mind, do you think that maybe the summer after the players have been flogged to death for the best part of three years to get to the World Cup final and win it, that someone might have said they need a summer off? Um, but they didn't because it's all about making money and it's all about honouring agreements. So we went to Australia and New Zealand. And I remember looking around the changing room thinking, it's a very different team to the one that I played in less than 12 months ago. Um, different in terms of personnel well, or psychology? Ev- everyone's retired and, and uh, you know, and the coaches were struggling for their own motivation some players were struggling for their own motivation kind of what i was saying before yeah, how, it how is. do you motivate well yourself? you need to rest you know you can't you can't do it relentlessly you know we're not machines i mean even though people like to think you are human beings are not machines they're 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 similar in many ways but there is an emotional involvement as well and you need rest and you need to reflect and then you need to refocus and re target your ambitions and your and what you're trying to achieve because of course in any sport you know you get to the top you achieve what you wanted to achieve and you go right I've done that now I need to reset my what's my next target and for some people it might be I want to be in the cover of GQ magazine and for others it might be well I want to win that again and I want to win it again and again and again what was your personal motivation after 2003 well, I was really excited. I think you, you, you've worked really hard to get yourself in the best physical and mental uh, states that you've ever been in in your life. Because you sh- if you go to a world tournament, you, you, you shouldn't, there shouldn't be a time when you're in any better physical sh- shape. So if you win that, it would be a shame just to, you know, just to give it all up after that. You've worked so hard. You may as well enjoy the fruits of all your hard work and try and win even more. So as I said, you know, for me, I was lucky because I was fit. I was mentally, I felt fresh. And I wanted to go out there and and um, and, and win more trophies, and and uh, because that, as I said to you before, that feeling of of winning is is a is a is a powerful one. It's a it's an intoxicating one. It's like a drug, and it's one that you want to uh, you know. Unfortunately, is not prescribed on a regular basis by by anyone. So you have to you have to you have to go out and get it yourself and be part of something. And I I suppose the challenge is is to reset retar- refocus your targets and go. Well, I've won that. Can I win it again? And can I win it again and again and again? We talked to last week on the telephone about transitioning. That means leaving the sport and coming away from rugby and going into an, another uh, way of earning a living or another way of life. And for many sports people, as you know, Lawrence, this is a very, very difficult time. And when I asked you what you felt about transitioning and coming out of rugby, the word you said was relief. Yes, because I was involved in a sport that is pretty tough. And uh, I mean, every sport is tough in different ways, but... I promise you, getting your face smashed in all around the world uh, is not as glamorous as it looks. Um, and um, I think that if you were to plan a player's rugby career, there would be a lot more rest involved because to get the best out of yourself, um, you know, you, you need to uh, recover, you need to rest, you need to re you know, all the things that we've just talked about. Um, you've got to remember that I was one of the first, along with my colleagues, to to play professional rugby. In fact, I was the, one of the first players. The game went professional in 95. There was no template of how things should be done. So I felt by the end of my career, I mean, I'd been playing rugby since 1990 and I retired in 2007. 
So I played 17 years. And in that time, I, I didn't have much rest. Now, maybe I, I can look back and blame myself for that, but you, you've, you're almost on this relentless roller coaster, and it's very hard to get off it. What uh, drove you? Unless you get injured, in which case you get a chance to sort of reflect and stop. Um, but it's just, it, it, you know, it just keeps coming and coming kind of every season. I'd have three weeks' holiday where I'd go away with my family, and then I'd be back into another pre season and just keep going and going and going. So, to, to the point where after you know, 15, 16, 17 years, I was really excited about not doing that because all I've ever done for the last 15, 16, 17 years is play rugby. And, you know, it does take its toll on you physically. I mean, I've had 14 operations in my career. It takes its toll on you mentally because, you know, you've got to get yourself up for every single game. Uh, and it's tough. And that's why I have the most incredible admiration for not just sportsmen who get to, or women who get to the top, but who've got uh, this ability and this longevity in their career, like your Federers and people like that, who just continue to put themselves in the firing line, you know, week in, week out, day in, day out, because it's a tough thing to do. So what drove you to keep going? Because there must have been times in that 17-year career you think, do I, do I want another season of this? Can well, I do it for another year? I think year? a mixture of things. I mean, what, I mean, it's a bit of a selfish career sport because it's all about you. You know, so obviously I've got you know family. I have my wife Alice, my daughter, my daughter's Ella Josie, and my son Enzo. My parents were alive. So, um, did you feel pressure to carry on? No, 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 not pressure by that. The opposite of that, actually, because the only way you can carry on is if you have the support of okay. the people close around you. Because as I said, it's all about you. You know, everyone else has to sacrifice to a degree what they're doing in order to provide and help you to have the career that you have as well. So in that sense, there's... Uh, but, but also, it's... Um, don't get me wrong, it's exciting as well. There, you know, there is, a, there is a... You know, the highs are incredibly high, and yes, the lows are incredibly low when, you, you know, you have to deal with injury, you know, career-threatening injury, loss of form, selection, all these things. You know, they can be losing games that you should have won. You know, they, these are all very big low points, but actually the high points are well worth, you know, continuing. And it... I, I really enjoyed it. I'm not going to lie. I really enjoyed it. You asked me the question, what did you think when it came to transitioning? I think there is a sense of relief. I played until I was 35. And if I'm honest, the last two or three years of my rugby career were quite painful, not only for the people watching, but also for me for me playing because, you know, I had to have injections, I had to have uh, painkillers just to get out on the training field and the playing field. And this is not a... Uh, a hard luck story that, that's limited to me alone. Most professional sportsmen and women, when they come to the end, you know, the, the, there's an acceptance in your in your mind that you can't do the things that you used to be able to do. And there's also a realization that you can only do them with a bit of help. <laughs> and you don't, you, you you know, I was playing maybe only forty or fifty minutes as opposed to eighty minutes, but I wasn't pain free. And that's quite a difficult place to exist because uh, it's only your your know-how and your experience that are getting you uh, around. And also you've got these young, you know, up-and-coming players coming through that want to knock your head off and, uh, and, and make sure that they beat you. So, look, I, I enjoyed it enormously, but I think there was a relief that... That, the, that my career was coming to an end in, in the most natural way because a lot of sportsmen and women don't get to write their own scripts. They're either dropped or told, you know, you're no longer required. I, I was lucky. I played in the World Cup final in 2007. Uh, I then carried on playing a few more weeks for Wasps and my final game was the Premiership final in 2008 for Wasps against Leicester in front of 85,000 people and we won the game and it felt like a fitting way to go out and the right way to go out as well. 
So, Lawrence, what keeps you busy these days? Well, I've got a number of interests in, in terms of continuing my association with rugby. Um, you know, a lot of people will recognise my voice or, or, or my face uh, from, from, you know, broadcasting on, on ITV and, and BT Sport and, and whatever, what have you. But one of my real passions is, is Rugby Works, Delalio Rugby Works, the charity I set up um, eight years ago. I've talked, we've talked a little bit in detail about my own journey um, and around the support systems that I, was, I had in place. Uh, I've chosen to work in a, in a with young disadvantaged kids who perhaps did not have that unconditional love or or do not have that support system. So I I use um, rugby as a way of going into pupil referral units um, and working with kids who have been permanently excluded from mainstream education. And we work with them from the ages of fourteen to seventeen with the ultimate aim of 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 giving them the tools and the support and and the the guidance necessary to get them into full time employment and education um, sadly sixty five percent of everyone in the United Kingdom who's in prison has been excluded from mainstream education. so what that tells you is that fundamentally the system is broken uh, and it needs fixing and th- there's a part of society that 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 people seem to forget, which is this kind of area of disadvantage. There's, no young people are born bad. They're just not necessarily born into the same privileged families or circumstances or situations as, as, as people that live up the road. So I think, you know, I feel fundamentally drawn to helping using uh, rugby as a m- means of giving in the same way as rugby has, uh, has given me everything in my life. Lawrence Delalio, thank you so much for joining us on The Sporting Couch. Thank you. You've been listening to On The Sporting Couch, a programme about good mental health in sport and sports psychology. My guest in the studio has been Lawrence Delalio, former England Rugby Union captain and former World Cup winner. I hope the show will encourage anybody who's going through a tough time to seek help. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website. Go to www.talksport.com forward slash sporting dash couch. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, I'm at Bloomers57. Thank you so much for listening to this programme. And please remember, there's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Goodbye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 